I think it goes back to Alter Eco having been around for a while and just been a company that was so focused on sustainability that maybe they weren't even doing marketing in the traditional sense. Um, so, you know, this is a company, it was founded as a fair trade company. And as it continued to grow, anytime it could become more sustainable, it took that path. So whether it was becoming climate neutral or inventing a new type of compostable packaging or being a B Corp, like as the world evolved to find new ways for companies to help people and planet, Alter Eco has said yes to that challenge every time. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. That's better products, better brands, and better leadership for a better world. Visit community.evolvecpg.com to join. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. On today's episode, we're speaking with Pilar Ochi, VP of Marketing at Alter Eco, about her transition from mainstream to natural product marketing and the joys and struggles of having too much to say when you're a mission-driven brand. Hi, my name is Pilar Ochi, and I lead marketing at Alter Eco. We are a sustainable sweet snacks company. I joined because this was the first brand I found that does more for people in planet than they talk about. So in other words, marketer catnip. Right now, we're mostly focused in the chocolate space, but we will be looking at bringing our sustainable mission and our clean green sweet snacks to new categories soon. So exciting. I love that <laughs> marketer's catnip. I hadn't heard that before. That's fun. Awesome. So thanks for joining us, Pilar. I'm excited to have you on the show. We've obviously had tons of conversations since we get to, get to work together on the Alter Eco brand. And I've always been super impressed with your intelligence and decision-making capabilities and ability to just kind of cut through a lot of clutter and try to figure out what's most important. So I'm really excited to have you on the on the show to talk a little bit about what you've done with Alter Eco. But before, I like to also dive into people's background a little bit so that it gives some context and inspiration and it shows that like career paths are meandering and and no matter where you are today, you can get somewhere where you want to be or kind of learn from someone else that's been there before. So with that said, I noticed that you started off your education slash career with a degree in economics. So what drew you into economics? Yes, I'm a great example of the meandering path. My first job was in graphic, my first internship was in graphic design, but my first job was in investment banking. So (laughs) I have tried a lot of things. (laughs) Anyways, uh, (laughs) how did I decide on economics? I think I've always been really interested in human behavior. So I was definitely going into something in the social sciences Economics appealed to me because I was very focused on impact at that stage of my life. And economics is social sciences, but at a high level. (laughs) So you're able to aggregate lots of data and come up with outcomes that apply to a really broad swath of humans. I also love that economics is so applicable to so many different thought processes So most people think of economics as applicable to the economy, government, listening to NPR, what you hear on the news. But, uh, you know, those same techniques could describe why Northern and Southern Italy developed different culturally, why 
there have been mass migration patterns in the history of the world. So it's really more of a framework for understanding human behavior at scale rather than a very narrow topic. So you can tell I'm a nerd and that's how I ended up in economics. Well, that's really cool. I hadn't thought about that before and, and I probably should know that since my sister got a degree in economics, a master's I think in economics. For one of her degrees, she has multiple. She's one of those people that just keeps getting paid by her companies to get more degrees. So. Well, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tell me how I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But I hadn't thought about it in, in that direction, but that makes total sense because obviously the flow of money kind of determines a lot of what happens in the world, obviously. And like even just trade itself has influenced what countries get discovered or what countries get pulled into empires and and so on and so forth. So it's it is a huge subject. And I know you went off to Harvard to study that. So your intelligence is obvious there, but also just from all the conversations I've had with you. <laughs> so I know that you worked, I think you worked briefly in kind of economics related jobs right after that degree. But I, I also saw that you at some point went back to school for an MBA. So tell me a little bit more about like some of those first jobs maybe, but then also what and when kind of like, how did you decide you wanted to go and shift more into marketing and get an MBA? Oh, great question. I'm a big believer in collecting diverse experiences early in your career. It helps you figure out what you want to do and have a lot of conviction about it. So every job has its ups and downs, but if you've already experienced the opposite side of the coin, you will remember why you're grateful for where you are <laughs> currently. So I started out in investment banking, and that was just an incredible primer in business. Understanding how a, how a P&L, how an income statement works, is helpful no matter what function you're in. And the biggest realization for me after a couple of years was that I wanted to be on the corporate side. I wanted to be involved in building something. Client services is very fast paced and has the advantage that you're always working with a new client. So you're always learning a new industry. You can cover a lot in a couple of years. The disadvantage is that you're not part of a long standing team and a long standing project. So it's hard to look back and say, oh, I, I built this. So the first pivot in my career was moving from client services over into a, a company. And right after that, I went to Visa. And it was this great program where I got to try out a whole bunch of different functions. And while I was there, I realized that sales and marketing was having a lot of the fun, <laughs> or at least what I thought was fun. And I think the reason I liked it is it was really tangible. So thinking about, oh, well, all these transactions happen at Walmart, and this is what people are buying at Walmart. And the reason they can check out is because of a Visa card. It, it appealed to me because it was so tangible and so close to consumer behavior, which I talked about earlier. So that's why I went and got my MBA. I knew I wanted to do consumer packaged goods brand management first because it was in marketing, so tying consumer behavior to the tangible, but also because it uses both half of your brains. So I alluded to earlier that I definitely have a creative side, although definitely not as talented as the people on your team, but I also have very much more numbers and business side. And brand management is a unique subset of marketing where you really get to do both. And in my job today, one of my favorite aspects is Yes, I think about creative and consumer communications, which what 
is what you would traditionally associate with marketing. But I also get to think about product innovation. And I also get to think about sales support. So looking at consumption data to understand trends. So it really is both the creative and and the problem solving and the numbers all coming together. And what I love is like how all of those things come together at a high level. If you asked me to choose one of those disciplines, I wouldn't be able to choose. That's cool. Yeah. And it's I feel like there's lots of degrees or focuses of education that kind of complement each other. And obviously, economics flowing into marketing makes total sense because economics is the study of the whole system, right? But then marketing is like the practice of pulling some of those levers <laughs> to change the system or exactly. to manipulate it for whatever you're trying to do. So that's probably some really nice background to have for doing what you do. I also think that learning psychology is important for getting into design or branding because as you mentioned like consumer psychology and how and why they do certain things obviously could be very beneficial to trying to get them to do the right thing i totally agree i think my favorite marketing book is almost a psychology book i can't remember who the author is but it's called decoded and it goes into the psychology of purchasing decisions and that's one of those books that i pick up over and over again to reference and remind ground myself in how the human mind works as a marketer you want to work with the human mind, not against it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. That's cool. I just wrote that book down. I'll have to check it out. Uh, one that I just recently read that kept getting referred to me by different psychologists and marketers alike was Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. And it goes all through kind of why how people kind of act in certain ways based on other kind of social influencers going on, whether that's authority or um, social influence or... or exclusivity, like different principles like that. But I recently did an episode actually of, of the podcast on breaking down the six or six or seven principles, I think it was six, in that book and kind of showing how it applies to branding. So I'll have to check the decoded book out. Maybe that yeah, would make for another good you. episode. I'm, I'm writing down notes too. <laughs> nice. Okay. So you ended up working at finding your path into uh, marketing, which is awesome. But then Somewhere along the line, you also decided that CPG was the space that you wanted to end up in. And uh, I know you started working with Clorox, but what made that transition? Like, how did you know CPG was the space to focus on next? Mm. Initially, CPG was a space I wanted to focus on because marketing gets to own so many business components. And after having started my career in M&A, I wasn't ready to let that go. I think the other reason is the product is so tangible. <laughs> when I was in M&A, I think my parents had some idea of what I was doing, but it was hard for them to relate. As soon as I moved into packaged goods, whenever I go home, you know, my parents' friends have all these ideas for products that I could launch. And that's really gratifying. I think the other thing I love about packaged goods is that it does have a fair amount of mass market impact. So when you create a product, you know that it's going into millions of households. And it is just such a privilege to go into a store and see your product on shelf or go into someone's house and they don't even, didn't even know you worked on a product, but it's under their kitchen sink. So 
the just the scale and the fact that you get to be part of these small moments in so many consumers' lives is is really cool for me. I think I also have a bit of a uh, going back to that human behavior. <laughs> if you invite me over to your house, I have to re- try really hard to resist the impulse to go through your cabinets and <laughs> your sink. Like, so I just love getting the picture <laughs> of people and how they live their lives. And I think the most interesting parts of people come out in these small moments. It's not what we portray in social media or necessarily the face we put on at work. It's these little moments that happen at home. And that's fascinating to me. Did that passion for like looking through cupboards and seeing what people have in their homes come before or after you got into CPG? You know, it's funny When I was a little kid, I didn't have a favorite stuffed animal. I had a collection of bottles (laughs) that I really loved. So there was a little calamine lotion bottle that I think I liked because it was pink, a little bottle of Bosch and Loam contact solution because it was really small. And I, I just collected interesting packaging and to the point where I always had my pockets full of them. If I took a nap, they all came to the bed with me. So I think there was some level of loving the tangible and loving CPG that started at a very young age. <laughs> That's awesome. And as a designer, I totally feel you there because we collect, <laughs> collect cool things that we find all the time. Like I've got back in one of my cabinets, all these vintage old beer cans and one of my buddies got me like a poster of vintage beer cans because I'm a big craft beer fan, but vintage cans are just so funky and hard to find that and it's cool when you come across like a really nice one. That's fun that you've been a CPG lover <laughs> since you were a kid. I mean, we should all just probably think about what we what we loved when we were you know, very young before we had any inhibitions. And that's probably the career path that we're meant to be on, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, for me, for example, I also love being in CPG for similar reasons. Like, it's just so fun to just when people are like, well, what have you worked on? And you can list some names of products or whatever. And they're like, oh, my God, I buy that all the time. Or I see that at the store or something. And it's so much more tangible than some of the other things that uh, we've designed over our time where you have to go on and try to explain it and pull something up on the internet or like try to draw a diagram, you know, anything just to try to get them to understand it. But CPG is just so immediate. And then it's also just so much fun that no matter what town you're in or, or where you are, you can like walk through a grocery store and just see like some brand that you've helped influence or a package that you've designed. And um, even before getting into CPG, I'm just a big food nerd. So I would always just be wandering grocery, like shopping at a grocery store is always one of my favorite things to do. And especially when I'm in other towns, just seeing what they have on their shelves, what unique local stuff they have, or what kind of stuff they stock in this part of town or this store versus that store. It's just always so much fun. So I was super excited when I got the opportunity to dive into this space as well. I completely agree. I cannot believe I get paid to hang out in Whole Foods. It's like a dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. And now, now that you uh, are in CPG, of course, like poking through people's cabinets is like actually for your job. You know, you don't just seem like some weirdo investigating what food That's true. Eating. <laughs> it's ethnographic uh, research. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's totally. what we got. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So I know what you worked at Clorox for a little while. Can you explain some of your roles that you had there? But then. Also, you eventually shifted over into coffee with Blue Bottle. So tell us about that kind of transition, like what you were doing at Clorox and then how you ended up at Blue Bottle. Yes. So at Clorox, I um, was an associate marketing manager and a brand manager. 
And I had the opportunity to spend more than half of my time there at Innovation, which is pretty unique. They divide the role into two halves. There's base, which is when you get really good at running an existing mature business. And then there's innovation where you're coming up with new products. And uh, I started off in innovation and love that because I still believe that innovation is the most cross-functional discipline that a CPG company has inside. It really takes an entire team from marketing and consumer insights to come up with the initial idea, to sales, to make sure it gets distributed, to R&D and supply chain, to develop the product and figure out how to manufacture it at scale and get it onto shelves. And then marketing, again, to make sure it turns on shelves. So it's like all these individual levers. And to have a successful launch, you really need every lever. So Florex, I would say, was just great training. It's a very process-driven company. You learn, you learn how to, you learn what the full brief is, the full process is, and then you go to a small company and you do 25% of that and call it a day. But it's good to know what the full process is so that you have a perspective on what you would cut out um, if you had to. So at Clorox, I worked mostly in the cleaning division. And my favorite launch that I worked on was for this line called uh, Clorox Sentiva. It was uh, kind of like Bath and Body Works meets cleaning products. And the products smell great, but they work like Clorox products work. So that was just really fun. And, you know, in, in marketing, there's been this progression from more functional benefits to more emotional benefits. And that was a big step for Clorox uh, to go towards the emotional, right? There's no, it's not going to score as well in in traditional CPG testing. And it's not going to require a lot of the same types of marketing, right? Like you have to figure out how the consumer can smell the product at shelf, (laughs) which is different. So I really loved working on that project. That was a highlight. And then at Blue Bottle... That step was, I remember starting the recruiting process and it was literally like, what products do I think are fun? (laughs) And it really ran the gamut, but I'm from, I grew up in Seattle, grew up drinking decaf coffee before I was allowed to have caffeine. Like I just always loved coffee. You know, the cool hangout spot was Starbucks (laughs) rather than the mall. So coffee was a really natural progression. And then, I mean, Blue Bottle is... It's kind of, it's, it's art built around coffee. And I've always really loved the arts. I was really interested in ballet growing up. That's how I spent the vast majority of our time, my time. And so seeing how Blue Bottle could take a product and do theater around it was really exciting. And then taking that whole theater of the retail experience and distilling it down into the three-second decision that happens at a grocery store shelf that was a big challenge, and I was excited to work on that challenge. Plus, the headquarters are beautiful. They're in Oakland. The team is amazing. It tra- attracts great talent. And I learned a lot um, from working at a company that I think has such a different strength from Clorox. I like to think that I can take what I learned, the best of both of those organizations, and bring it to the alter eco and other places I may work. Yeah, and I know you mentioned that before, too, is like that diversity of experience experience earlier in your career or just throughout your career that like makes your perspective so much more rich and allows you to pull the best parts from from this job or the best parts from that process or the best parts from this industry and pull them together into what you're doing now so that's that is one of my favorite things about being on more on the agency side rather than 
internal is that I get to see so many different brands, so many different business models from like co-ops to nonprofits to for-profits to B Corps to whatever, and then different scales from like startups to multi-billion dollar international conglomerates and and just kind of like see how different people do business. And that gives me this interesting perspective to be able to try to guide clients wherever possible. So I love that, but you are also, you know, found ways to do that throughout your career by just bouncing around to, you know, different industries, studying different things, uh, working on different brands while you're at different companies. And I think that's probably what makes you so much more holistic at looking at the big picture um, rather than getting caught in some of the little details. And I think it's also fun that your um, creative kind of mind keeps coming back through. Like you were talking about the uh, the enjoyment of the theater around the blue bottle <laughs> kind of packaging and your collecting of all the little packages when you were a kid and, you know, your internship with design. So it's it's great that you're one of the rare people that can combine that both qualitative and quantitative or like creative and analytical mind. I think that also helps. Absolutely. Definitely more of an uh, appreciator of the creative. I wish that I could create from nothing, <laughs> but you know, that's why we have partners. <laughs> Product innovation is kind of creating from nothing, right? And you said that's you true. did ballet. I'm sure there's some a lot of creativity in performance as well. That so is true. I think it's there. There's just different types of, types of creativity, right? Some people can pick up a paintbrush. Some people can put a words to paper. Some people can kind of direct some choreogra- choreography. Um, it comes in all different shapes and sizes. Thank you. I like that, Gage. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Um, one quick clarification, just so if anyone's listening doesn't know the difference, could you quickly explain? You've mentioned like some different roles of like I worked as a marketing director, or I worked as a brand manager, a few of those different kind of terms. What's the difference when you're uh, between somebody who's marketing a brand versus a brand manager? Oh, absolutely. So it's always hard to tell from title <laughs> what a role actually entails. I would say in general, there's a progression from an associate manager to manager to director to VP, and that's just rising in seniority and scope of responsibility in an organization. For those looking to learn more about packaged goods, I would say that the scope of responsibility is really different depending on if you're in a big established company like Clorox or if you're in a smaller brand like Blue Bottle or Alter Eco. In general, if you're a brand manager in a traditional Procter & Gamble, Unilever, Mondelez type organization, a lot more of your time will be building the general management skill set. So understanding the P&L, figuring out that your portfolio is optimized for margin, and you definitely get to uh, work with creative, but you have so much support both internal teammates and external agencies, that you're a bit more removed from the creative process. So for example, you're thinking a lot about your advertising mix and you're trying to shift your media spend in a more efficient direction. And you've got a lot of data to do that. So you know that creative A worked better than creative B. So we're going to weigh creative A more heavily in the rotation. You know that a 15-second spot was more effective than a 30-second spot, so we're going to shift our budget towards a 15-second spot. That's pretty different from being at a Blue Bottle or an Alter Eco, where you are very close to the creative. Sometimes you're even cobbling together the creative yourself. Um, And so the process is much more, here's an example of inspiration that we found on the internet we're going to tweak, tweak it in these five ways to make it work for our category, and it's going to accomplish ABC objectives. Or 
I just had an awesome idea. I want to work with this partner to get the word out. Their audience feels like a really good fit with our consumer target. And so it's much more about inspiration and you're constantly learning, but you don't have a whole bunch of statisticians running numbers to be able to make really concrete shifts. Your learnings are happening popcorn all over and any anything from going to a grocery store to seeing your engagement rate on your latest Instagram post is going to give you the data that you need to make decisions off of. So I would say for me, the scope of the role depends less on title and more on the type of organization where you are doing CPG marketing. That makes sense. I guess I would say the same thing for agency side where Sometimes you'll see somebody with a VP title or something like that in creative world. And all it really means is that they work at a big ad agency or something like that, because they'll give VP title to anyone just to make them seem more impressive when they go into a client meeting. But then there's also like art director versus creative director. In some industries, art director is actually kind of just an intern. And in other worlds, it's like the top person at the studio. So it's just really confusing in agency side. But it is really more to do with the type of organization you're working in and what titles they give. So if you're like Absolutely. a big ad agency or a big PR agency, your titles might be fluffed up more. If you're a small studio or something like that, there might be more nuanced titles of like junior, mid, senior, different things like that. So it is kind of, that's a good way of explaining it, that it's really more about the the organization or the size of organization or the culture of organization that you're going into. Absolutely. And when we when I hire people for my team, I always try to get as concrete about the work as possible to look at work samples and also to understand what role that um, they played in that work. Because you could look at the same marketing campaign and the same creative, but if you were one person with a whole bunch of agencies supporting you, that's a very different story than if you were the person who actually came up with the concept, you know, cobbled together the creative in Canva you know, ran the ad in Facebook. And so it's, I think, as marketing leaders, now that there's so many different types of marketing organizations and a huge proliferation of marketing channels, it's really important to understand like what was the actual work and each person's role in the work. And title is one indicator, but it is definitely not the most important. Yeah. And one other thing you kind of alluded to that I think is interesting, and I've been noticing as I read different case studies of different business sizes and I think it's both like how long a company has been around and therefore like do they have any of the original founders or original kind of team in there that really knew what the company was about anymore. But it also could just be scale of business. Like if it's a giant business, of course, they can't hire people from their consumer audience or whatever anymore. But but there's these smaller companies that are more either newer companies or more kind of purpose driven and everyone in the company is really passionate about what that that company is doing and they probably are the consumer and therefore they don't need to do as much deep dive research and crunching numbers and trying to figure out what the market wants and so on and so forth because they are the market and they know and they can be more observant and just like pay attention to trends and be like, I like this. Other people probably like it. I see all my friends doing this. So let's, let's go down that path. Whereas like sometimes in the bigger companies or a brand that's been along around for a really long time and just doesn't really know it's or lost its way a little bit. They have to rely a lot more on research because they don't, they aren't the audience. You know, they're, they're creating something for somebody they don't really know much about. So they have to go out and learn about that. So I, I feel like there's kind of a difference I've noticed working with some of like the, the bigger international brands that have been around for a hundred years versus, versus brands that are like 
10 years old, scrappy, and still like are very much passionate about, about exactly why they started the company. That is so true. At Alter Eco, I was laughing the other day. We had some spins data on where our sales come from by state. And it was the states where our employees live or had grown up in or their parents still lived there. And we are an example of a company where our employees, everyone from not just marketing, but finance, sales, every function is really the consumer. And it is awesome how efficiently we're able to move because we are the consumer and we don't spend a ton of time on research as a result. So I completely, completely agree with that. Yeah. I wish I remember where it was, but I remember reading a case study about Harley Davidson and how they had kind of kind of lost their mojo for a certain period of time. And it was some marketing person that came onto the team and decided, I think it was like for the first year in the role, they would just hit the road on a motorcycle and just like become part of the community before they made any decisions or or tried to figure out where the take to take the company and just became like part of that community and really understood what it was all about. And then by the when he came back to start making some decisions and pushing the company forward, he was able to build it, bring back some of that passion and authenticity that really made the brand what it, you know, came back to being again. So anyway, you um found your way after Blue Bottle into Alter Eco and that's when we started getting to collaborate, which is yes. also which is fun. But how did the that transition happen? Um, how did you end up working at Alter Eco and what drew you into that company? Yes, I definitely, I was not looking. <laughs> the company was just such a perfect fit. I, I couldn't say no. <laughs> so I think it goes back to Alter Eco having been around for a while and just been a company that was so focused on sustainability that Maybe they weren't even doing marketing in the traditional sense. Um, so, you know, this is a company, it was founded as a fair trade company. And as it continued to grow, anytime it could become more sustainable, it took that path. So whether it was becoming climate neutral or inventing a new type of compostable packaging or being a B Corp, like as the world evolved to find new ways for companies to help people and planet, Alter Ego has said yes to that challenge every time. So I think on a on a personal level, I grew up in a household. My, my dad is very altruistically minded and thinks a lot about the impact of the decisions that he makes on the world. And my husband is also that way. So I think eventually <laughs> I was going to make my way into a really mission-focused company or a B Corp of some sort. So that was what appealed to me on a personal level. From a sheer business level, I mean, the world is moving towards altruism, sustainability, having more knowledge of the impact of our purchase decisions on the people and planet around us. And I want to be part of that shift. And as a marketer, you're constantly thinking about storytelling. So as you learn about the product, as you learn about the brand, as you meet your suppliers or your co-manufacturers, your brain is automatically, you, you can't stop it thinking, okay, well, how do I position this? Like, how do I take advantage of that fact to be able to sell more product? And this was a company where like, there were so many facts to talk about. The, the problem was actually choosing which one. So it was just an incredible opportunity to not have to spin up a story. The story's already there. You just have to simplify it and get it in front of consumers. 
So I'd say it fit with my personal values. And so the values I was raised on and the people around me have, but it also fit with my sense of business opportunity and a feeling that the world's moving this direction and I want to be part of it. Nice. So you weren't looking, but that perfect brand that just spoke to you and and felt like the right uh, next move popped up. That makes total sense. Absolutely. It's also chocolate. My actually, even before I joined the company, (laughs) my husband calls me the chocolate eating business detective. My favorite thing to do is work (laughs) and stuff my face full of candy. So it was meant to be. Office also happens to be 15 minutes away from my house. (laughs) So just on on every level. And then when I met the team, just people who I would probably be friends with, even if I didn't work with them. So really, the reason you got the job is because you needed to somehow uh, cut the cost down of your chocolate eating habits by working for a company where you could sample the chocolate as research now. <laughs> it was it was very refreshing. When you're in packaged goods, every time you move to a new category, you immerse yourself in the category. So you learn about the brands and you go to shelf and there was no preparation needed. I've been a chocolate, an avid chocolate consumer, and I knew the natural category pretty well just as a consumer before I even started. So yes, it was a very natural transition. See, that just goes back to what I was saying before about some companies have, they just hire people from their community, like people who are already passionate about that category, about their products, about whatever. And then they don't need to do years worth of research to figure out what makes a consumer tick because they they live it. You know, you already know it. That makes total sense. So I know that when you got to Alter Eco, obviously there was a lot of stuff going on. Modern Species, my agency, has been involved with Alter Eco across a few different versions of the brand. So I, I can sympathize with you when you say there's like too much to talk about and it was hard to make decisions on, on which things were the most important to talk about. Especially, I think, like you said, the, the company started maybe as like fair trade and so like showing farmers and like the map in the world where that's coming from and different things started off as one of the main priority points. And then as things shifted a little bit away from commodity and more towards value-add products like chocolate bars with flavors in them and stuff, then it was a little bit more about taste and, and quality and uh, maybe some of the clean ingredients or, or whatever else. And then obviously other chocolate brands kind of come along and they're doing Me Too kind of like similar kind of look and feel. And then Alter Eco needed to figure out like where to stand out. And there was just too many things to talk about. And when you came in, to the brand, it was in a little bit of a, a flux of trying to figure out where to go next um, with some new leadership teams and stuff. So from that point forward, like what was your kind of approach to coming in and figuring out what this brand that has way too much to talk about, how, how are you kind of going about figuring out what it should be talking about first? Absolutely. So I knew that simplification would be the name of the game because there was so much that we could talk about. And I also knew that Building a brand is a balance between owning the thing that makes you special and owning the thing that gets you into a consumer's cart, (laughs) because at the end of the day, you have to sell product. And the positioning that we arrived at, I think, accomplishes both. And that's why it has been succeeding in market. So when I look at the chocolate category... There were, there's, there's so many different positionings you could own, but if I had to simplify it in one sentence, you can be mouthwatering delicious. I want to put this in my mouth ASAP. (laughs) You can be healthy. This is made with clean ingredients and it makes me feel less guilty that I'm eating chocolate. 
Or you can be better for the world. This is fair trade. It helps farmers. It's carbon neutral. It helps to, to plant trees. It saves animals, etc. And when I looked across that continuum, the conundrum for Alter Eco is that we can deliver on all three. <laughs> and even in the natural category where the bar is higher, we can also deliver on all three. And I think that's what led the brand to be confused. Ultimately, we ended up landing in the second and third of the pillars that I described. That said, we address all three of those pillars in our marketing. So we knew that, yes, we answer on all three, but if we thought, if we have to choose one thing that really makes us special, that no one else does as well as us, that's sustainability. Better for the world. So we knew that that would have to play some role. And then the question was, well, this is a $4 chocolate bar. It's not a highly considered purchase. And so how are we going to get in the cart when the consumer is only in shopping mode? You know, making three second decisions, honestly, looking at a lot of price tags. And we had to choose um, if we wanted to lean into health or deliciousness. And we ended up deciding to lean into health because it is a less crowded space And when you look at our ingredient label, there are undeniable ways in which our products have better ingredients than our competitors. We're organic. We don't use emulsifiers, soy lecithin being the main one used in the chocolate industry. We are non-GMO. We are gluten-free. There's a long list of things that we we could differentiate off of. And it's not to say that we don't play up indulgence. For some of our products, that's more important. For example, our truffles, that's really important. And we make sure that that's addressed on pack. But we felt that in terms of what we could really own, that would be sustainability. And what would get us into consumers' carts, that would be the clean ingredients and better for you. And I'm hopeful that Alter Eco will crack the code on figuring out how to make a sustainable CPG product, a household name, it is a very high challenge. We, When I look for case studies of brands that have done this successfully, the list is very short because sustainability is not one of the things that consumers are thinking about when they're grocery shopping. And so in order to make a sustainable brand a household name, you're going to have to build a complex brand. You're going to have to own that attribute that gets you into the cart, as well as have this ecosystem about sustainability that drives long-term affinity. And that's that's a tall order to own an ecosystem and then also that trial driving benefit. And I think that's why there's not a lot of case studies for this. But I'm excited about the direction we're headed with um, modern species help. And certainly the initial in-market results have been really promising. So Fingers crossed that we continue to have the results that we've been having and we can crack the code on this. Yeah. And one of the things you talk about too is the um, idea of kind of the more emotional, you know, immediate gratification, me too, or what's in it for me kind of mindset. And then the more cerebral, like logical, like checklist of things people are looking for to feel good about their purchase or something like that. So, can you talk a little bit about like that balance when it comes to bringing that brand to life? Absolutely. So 
And this, a lot of this is in that book I was talking about, Decoded, where people in, when they're in grocery shopping mindset, their brain is shoving out of the way all the information that does not help them to make quick purchase decisions. Because otherwise we would be grocery shopping for many, many, many more hours than we have to grocery shop. Um, so those are, those are mostly, right. Those are mostly selfish interests, right? Like how much does this product cost? What's on my shopping list? Will this help me stick to my diet? And it's also, it's very, it's very quick and it needs to be very single-minded because consumers only looking at your package for a couple seconds and they're probably having one, maybe two takeaways. On the other hand, there is also this love that consumers have for some brands where, um, you know, they go to the brand's website when they're on their iPad in bed at night to learn more. And they're going to take the time to read the press release about how the brand is helping to plant trees in another part of the world. And that is a very different mindset. Like you're catching the consumer when they're actively seeking out to learn more about you and you just need to give them a reason to fall in love. So I think of it a lot like dating. <laughs> You've got to have the stuff on your profile that gets you that first date, that gets you into the cart, but that's not enough. To really have a long-term relationship, there needs to be depth and that's where sustainability comes in. So, you know, we spend time on both fronts both getting getting the first date and making sure we're really focused on our at-shelf communications, but also building the depth so that longer term, we're an interesting person that you want in your life for the long haul. So that's how I describe those, those two different parts of the consumer brain and how a, a brand really has to appeal to both. Yeah. And I think what is helpful about that too, is that especially for brands who have a lot to talk about, it's really hard to decide what to put on your the front of your package or whatever else. Obviously, some consumer research or doing a really thought out process of like what you've done helps. But then a lot of people have this like panic mode about like, but what about all those other amazing things about our brand? When are they going to find out about that? And I think brands are more of a, a journey or more of like a, a long movie series as opposed to just like a snapshot. It's the, But to your point, you need to figure out what that first thing is that's going to get them interested in the first place. And then once they're interested in engaging with you, you can peel back all the different layers of the onion and tell them more of your brand story over time. So just figuring out what those priorities are is important. And to your point, often, you know, they're going to take away one thing, maybe two things or something about your brand from first impression. And uh, one of the quotes, I'm not sure where this came from, but the, um, the quote that's uh if everything's a priority, then nothing is. You know, that's one of the, my favorite things because it is so hard for mission-driven brands to just decide what one thing do I want them to take away from their first impression of me. And it's okay that it's just one thing because if that one thing is the right thing, they'll want to learn more. They'll ask me more questions. They'll, you know, sign up for our newsletter. They'll buy more products. They'll open the package and look on the inside of the box like Alter Ego has more stories there. So I think the, the way you frame that is just could be super helpful to other CPG brands just trying to figure out which stories to lead with and just being okay with putting some of them later in their brand story instead of right up front. 
Yes, I always remind myself and better to be wrong than to be indecisive. Because if you're indecisive, you're not learning anything. So I would rather pick a clear communication priority for my front of pack, have it go to shelf, have it bomb, and then learn what the right communication priority is and have that succeed in market than be really ambiguous and have no impact. Because then you're not moving the, the company forward. You're not learning anything. And I guess I, I really value learning to the extent that I would rather be wrong than have learned nothing. Yeah, there's a lot of other phrases like that. But one of my marketing friends taught me or told me her phrase that keeps her moving, which is done is better than perfect. Because if you're looking for perfect, you're never going to launch, you'll never learn anything. But if you just get it done and get it out there, you'll learn so much more. So it's like playing into the bias towards action, etc. That's cool. Um, So can you tell me what some of the biggest challenges you're facing? You know, you've launched this new brand, most of it's hitting the market, updated website, etc. And so now what are you shifting to? Like, what's the biggest challenge you're trying to tackle as a brand? Yes. Right now where we are, we've, we've redone a lot of our own content or packaging or website and it's performing really well. So our product is turning really well at shelf. Our conversion rates are up on our website. Our engagement rates are higher than I thought they could go on social media. The next step for us is scale. <laughs> so we've built this uh, great ecosystem of content the consumers who come and visit our ecosystem, I'm confident that they will stay. And we're seeing that they stay engaged. The next step is how do we get more consumer eyeballs to come and be caught in our beautiful spiderweb ecosystem? So that's what we're, we're focused on now. And uh, traditionally, the, you know, it depends on your budget, how you scale. Um, If you have more budget, it's usually through paid media, through advertisement. If you have less budget, it's usually through earned media, through influencer and PR. We do a mix. While we do have, thanks to our investors, the ability to invest in paid media, earned is really powerful for us because we're a brand that walks the talk. And influencers, retailers tend to do more homework than consumers do. And so I'm surprised at the partnerships we're able to form with influencers. It's a privilege working on a mission-driven brand because influencers hear about the mission, they do the homework, they see that Alter Eco is doing more for the world than other chocolate brands, and they want to be part of the cause. And so they're willing to work with us often for free or at reduced rates, which enables us to work with even more influencers. So for us, it's going to be a mix of earned and paid, trying to get more eyeballs on our brand. Nice. I love it. And then one other question before we wrap up here, how do you kind of envision the industry and therefore the world evolving? I know we touched on it a little bit about like getting some of these purpose-driven brands to be household names and stuff, but but how do you envision that happening or what does that world look like once those better brands are household names? Yes, I have I have profession, professionally invested a lot in the belief that purpose-driven brands are going to be the brands of the future. In terms of how they do it, I think it is going to be by appealing to selfish consumer interests, but then having the consumer fall in love because of the purpose and having the consumer evangelize and tell their friends because of the purpose until eventually purpose-driven brands become the mainstream. I also think that we are in a period where 
brands are under a lot more scrutiny. And so there's going to be a lot more entries into the purpose-driven marketing arena. And so purpose-driven brands, it's not enough anymore just to say that you're purpose-driven. You have to have credentials and credibility behind that. So I think that being able to point to that deeper ecosystem where you prove that you're walking the talk will become more important. And then, because I do like creative, as we talked about, I think there's been a really interesting aesthetic shift. There's a, I think he writes for Bloomberg, but a journalist called um, Ben Schott, who coined this term called Blands. (laughs) But before the pandemic started, there were a million D2C brands that copied Warby Parker. (laughs) Selling to millennials, D2C first, minimalist website, incredible customer service. You kind of wonder how they're in business when it comes to the economics of the transaction. And I've seen a shift away from that very minimalist aesthetic to one that is more colorful, more detailed, more sensorial. And I think that aesthetic shift is really surprising because, I mean, when Blands first started, I was really surprised about that, but it becomes a little bit of a snooze. And, you know, by the time private label is very successfully copying it, you know, it's time to move on. (laughs) So I'm also excited about uh, this aesthetic shift that's happened post-pandemic. And then from a consumer standpoint, I think people are more interested in the simple things of life. You know, it's less about your Instagram feed and hashtag wanderlust and I went on this trip and I hit every tourist site and I definitely got a picture of myself shaking hands with a tiger. And it's more about celebrating the simple moments. I have a plant and it grew a tomato and it was so hard. It's the best tomato ever. And I love that consumer shift because it's just it's it's new. It's new things for marketing for marketing world to play with. And in general, I think it's healthy for humanity. Like, so social media has caused us to feel like we have to put on such a glamorous show. And now we're celebrating all the small things, which I think is really magical. So I'm excited because it's a new, you know, it's a new playpen for marketing, but also makes me feel uh, happy for humanity that we're (laughs) shifting to a mindset where we're celebrating the small things and hopefully expressing a bit more gratitude for what we all do have. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I think that does give hope, right? That maybe we're getting back to what actually matters (laughs) instead of all the glitz and glamour facade that kind of people were focusing on before. And I think some of that drive is the upcoming um, Gen Z generation that's starting to take over buying power from from millennials because I think millennials started some of those like hipster minimalism kind of brands and such. And now that we're started, they're starting to lose some of the power in the marketplace, I guess, and it's shifting over. But let's also hope that it's partly just because of maybe longer ongoing changes that, you know, this COVID pandemic has made people realize a little bit more of what's important in life instead of just can and just instead of just kind of the following the path that they were already on of climbing corporate ladders and and uh you know growing your social media and you know doing different things like that they've kind of were forced to refocus on what's important with their job their career their home life and so on and so forth because we're there 24 7 now (laughs) absolutely i'm hopeful that the pandemic will help 
people think more about the systems that enable their lives to go forward. So, you know, the simplest example being toilet paper running out of shelves and having to pause and think about where toilet paper comes from (laughs) and all the different people from the truck driver who drove it to your store to the person who stocked shelves to the person who's working at the plant to make that toilet paper, you know, everything that went into making that happen. At the same time, I do have some fear that when the world becomes a really scary place, consumers retrench and look inwards. So I'm I'm really hoping that the pandemic will be a turning point in terms of all of our awareness of how our lives influence um, the people and the earth around us. Yeah, that's a good point. I feel like that Supply chain is normally very transparent, but it became very opaque during this pandemic because everyone's favorite whatever was, you know, blocked up because of supply chain issues. So maybe it's made made people a little bit more aware of what's going on and all that it takes to get them their $4 bar of chocolate or, or whatever else. But as things open up back up again, let's hope that people can keep that in mind as we move forward. So I know we're basically at or over time here, so we could obviously keep talking for hours more, but we'll cut it off here. And I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us a little bit more about your journey and some of the things that make Alter Eco special. And I just appreciate um, everything that you're doing in in the world and trying to help these uh, Better for the World brands become mainstream. And I'm excited for that future that you envision. So thanks for doing what you do and for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me and for the beautiful packaging that is performing so well. Always happy to help a good cause. (laughs) Cheers. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback. So send us your thoughts or ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com. Business can be a powerful force for good. Is your brand living up to its full potential? Go to evolvecpg.com to learn about our new impact workshop, Exponential Good. Over six weeks, we'll be thinking bigger, getting relevant, spreading throughout, going exponential, working backwards, and making it real so you can walk away with a clear vision and a detailed action plan for scaling your brand's positive impact exponentially. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Alter Eco, go to altericofoods.com. <laughs>